0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh and PodCoin. As of the date of this recording, I'm gearing up to go to CrimeCon in New Orleans. I fly out in a couple of days and I'm so excited to see some of my favorite pod buddies. I'm also really looking forward to meeting some listeners, too. CrimeCon is always a really great time. I'll probably end up doing a CrimeCon recap episode on Patreon because I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about, so stay tuned for that. If you want to find me on Patreon, go to patreon.com murderish. Speaking of Patreon, I don't want to go any further without thanking my newest Patreon supporters, Lindsay, Pamela, and Louisa. Thank you so much, you guys, for your support. It is very much appreciated. During this episode, you're going to hear about a great true crime podcast called Case Closed, so you'll have to have your subscribe trigger finger ready. This case was suggested by my friend and listener of the show, Heidi. Heidi was also very helpful in gathering some case information for me. This case involves a young child, so please use discretion before listening. Today's case brings us to the Twin Cities in Minnesota. It was the early 90s when a young girl went missing, just yards away from her home. Authorities would zero in on a suspect fairly quickly and make an arrest, but laws were different then, and perhaps, if this crime had occurred in the present day, the outcome may have been vastly different. Join me as I walk you through the tragic case of Corinne Erstad. story of five-year-old Corinne Ersted. She vanished from her Invergrove Heights home back in 1992 and has never been found. The season may be changing on this block in Invergrove Heights, but for some here, the memories of passing this home never will change. I think about it just about every day. I gotta drive right by there. Joe McCarthy lives a few doors down from Corinne Ersted's childhood home. The five-year-old went missing in June of 1992. Devastating, just unbelievable But uh, she was such a sweet young little girl. Located in North Dakota County, Invergrove Heights, Minnesota, is mostly a middle-class suburb of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul. Pioneers claimed the area in 1852, drawn there by the beautiful countryside and how close it was to the Mississippi River. Settlers from Ireland and Germany built their own community in the area. Known as Inver Grove at the time. Settlers from England and France eventually built homes near the Mississippi River. The city of Inver Grove Heights was established in 1965, and the abundance of vacant land continues to be a draw for people moving there today. Although an attractive city for families, Inver Grove Heights does have its fair share of crime. Today, the city has a crime index score of 30, which means it's safer than 30% of U.S. cities. The overall crime rate in Invergrove Heights is lower than the national average. No matter what a city's crime rate happens to be, violent criminals don't discriminate, and people from anywhere can become their next victim. On June 1, 1992, around 7.30 in the evening, five-year-old Corinne Erstad walked out of the front door of her home in Invergrove Heights. Outfitted in a white sundress imprinted with green and pink watermelons, Corinne was headed to nearby Skyline Park. The little girl left her house with no shoes on. The park was located right outside of Corinne's backyard, only yards away from her house. Only five minutes after she left, Corinne's two older brothers were sent to bring her back home. When her brothers arrived at the park, Corinne was nowhere to be found. The young girl had vanished in a matter of only five minutes. Corinne was reported missing two hours later by her mother, Mona Williams, and her stepfather, Steve Williams. Some have questioned their decision to wait two hours before contacting authorities. Police received an early tip from a child who reported seeing Corinne at the park. He reportedly said that Corinne was talking to a man and petting his dog at the time. The boy, reportedly, was not able to say who the man was. Corinne Leanne Erstad was born on February 17, 1987, and lived in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota, with her family. The 40-pound girl with brown hair and brown eyes had a troubled home life. Corinne's family moved around a lot, and their only source of income was welfare. Corinne's mother was previously treated for an addiction to cocaine, and her biological father was treated for depression. Shortly after Corinne was born, she and her brother spent time in foster care. Corinne loved the family's pet cat and their dog Yogi. Like many five-year-olds, she also loved her Barbie doll and her stuffed teddy bear. Corinne often rode her new bike and always made trips to the nearby park with her brothers. Corinne has been described as sweet, trusting, affectionate, and happy. Corinne's father, James, said, quote, she tells a lot of people that she loves them. 30-year-old James lived in Lakeville, Minnesota, about 30 miles away from where Corinne lived. Corinne's mother, Mona, described her daughter as being somewhat shy. An investigation was immediately opened in Corinne's case, and they began searching for the little girl. Invergrove Heights Police Chief Stanley Troyer said he wouldn't speculate on whether Corinne was still alive. Troyer declared the investigation would go on until the young girl was found. Initially, the investigation was focused mostly on claims that Corinne was seen talking to a strange man in the park. The investigation, however, shifted quickly, and investigators began to turn their attention to friends and family members of Corinne. Numerous searches for the young girl were conducted, and at one point, canine units were called in to aid in the search and they caught on to something. The dogs were able to track Corinne's scent to a trailer home located in Oakdale, Minnesota, about 10 miles away from Corinne's home. The home belonged to a man named Robert Guevara. Guevara, 24 years old at the time, was a longtime friend of Corinne's stepfather, Steve Williams. Corinne's mother, Mona, had dated Guevara briefly in 1987 after her separation from Corinne's father. It was reported that Guevara often stayed overnight at the Erstead house when he got too drunk. It was also reported that Guevara often slept next to Corinne in her bed. That said, Mona and Steve Williams would later vehemently deny this allegation. The allegation that Guevara was allowed to sleep in Corinne's bed was made by a friend of Steve's, who claimed that Steve told him that Guevara liked to sleep with the young girl. Steve and Mona said Guevara and another man had previously lived in the basement of their townhome in 1988, but the two were kicked out shortly after for not paying rent. Guevara was taken in for questioning and he denied knowing anything about Corinne's disappearance. Guevara had an alibi, but not one that could be substantiated by anybody else. Guevara claimed that he was drunk and driving to Wisconsin during the time Corinne went missing. After a three hour interview and an admission from Guevara that he had cleaned his van shortly after Corinne went missing, investigators decided to seize his blue van. No arrest was made and Guevara was allowed to leave the interrogation. A claim was made later that alleged that Guevara shaved his mustache off in order to change his appearance after being interrogated by police. While police were looking into Guevara as a suspect, they continued efforts to eliminate Corinne's family as suspects. Corinne's parents and stepfather were eliminated after a thorough investigation was conducted, according to police. All three of them passed a lie detector test, while Guevara refused to take one. The day following Guevara's interview, police spoke with his fiancée, Christine Holzmer. Holzmer provided police with some information they found interesting. She told police that Guevara told her he threw up three times after visiting his storage locker on June 2nd, the day after Corinne went missing, a detail that would later be used against him. The day Holzmer was being questioned, an extensive search of Guevara's van was being conducted, and police found something. Bloodstains were discovered on the seats of Guevara's van. On the heels of this discovery, investigators turned their attention to the storage locker, which was mentioned by Holzmer. On June 5th, four days after Corinne went missing, investigators gained access to Guevara's storage locker. What they found inside was a treasure trove of evidence linking Guevara to the missing girl. Inside the locker, a plastic bag containing Corinne's sundress, the one she was wearing the day she disappeared, a hair barrette, a pair of women's underwear, and two white paper towels were found. A fingerprint on the plastic bag was later linked to Guevara. Another bag was found inside the locker, and it contained Guevara's t-shirt, a white diaper, a blue towel, and an insurance receipt. Mostly all of the items had bloodstains on them. The paper towels and women's underwear were soaked with blood. Inside of Guevara's home, investigators would discover even more blood-stained items. A blanket from Guevara's bed, his blue sweatpants, and another paper towel were found, all with bloodstains on them. A pink blanket and a pillow were found inside of Guevara's washing machine. The items had gone through a wash cycle, however, a single hair was found on one of the items. Later a claim would be made that that hair strand was a match to hairs found on Corinne's hairbrush. With the discovery of bloodstains in his van and Corinne's clothing found inside of his storage locker, Guevara was arrested on June 5th and charged with kidnapping, rape, and murder, even though search efforts had yet to turn up a body. Ishers, I'm a huge fan of meals that are fast and easy to cook, HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that I've recently started using and I'm loving it. In fact, I'm not sure why I waited so long to try it. HelloFresh meals are fast and easy and call for less than two pots and pans, which means less dishes. I'm exhausted by the time I come home from work. So I rely on HelloFresh to do all the meal planning, shopping and prepping for me. So I have more time to spend with my family and more time to binge murder shows. You can choose from classic, veggie, and family meal options and switch whenever you want. If you wanna knock out meals like a champ, HelloFresh even has cool features like dinner to lunch, 20-minute meals, and one-pot wonders. My favorite HelloFresh meal so far is the caramelized pineapple teriyaki burger. If you're ready to get out of the recipe rut and start enjoying the convenience of having meal kits delivered right to your door, I've got a great offer for you. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com murderish80 and enter promo murderish80. That's hellofresh.com murderish80 and enter promo murderish80. Information continued to come in on Corinne's case. Authorities would eventually learn that Corinne had told her mother that Guevara molested her the same day she disappeared. Curiously, Mona withheld this crucial information for several days after her daughter went missing. When questioned about it, Mona allegedly told police she had simply forgotten about it. Some people claim that Mona was mentally ill, and it was known that she had struggled with cocaine abuse but one claim was much more serious than the rest. It was said that Mona often sold Corinne for sexual favors. This claim, however, has never been substantiated. A Minnesota State Highway Patrol officer caught up with Guevara the day of his arrest while he was driving in an area about 70 miles north of Minneapolis. Guevara's arrest was uneventful, and a woman who was in the car with him was taken in for questioning. That woman would later be identified as Christine Holzmer, Guevara's fiancé. Guevara's older brother, Jerry Guevara, was also arrested just days after Corinne went missing. Jerry was suspected of aiding and abetting his brother, but authorities eventually released him with no charges filed. That would not be the last time law enforcement would catch up with Jerry. More on him later. The search for Corinne's body continued after Guevara's arrest. Land and air searches were conducted. Volunteer firefighters and police searched the Pine Bend landfill, hoping to find Corinne's body. A dumpster near the location of Guevara's storage locker had been dumped at the landfill, which is what prompted the week-long search for Corinne's body at the landfill. Unfortunately, the search did not turn up Corinne's body or any other items that could be used as evidence. Robert Guevara went on trial less than a year after Corinne went missing. Jurors got a good idea of what they'd be in for during defense attorney Anthony Torres's explosive opening statements. Torres opened up his defense by describing Mona Williams as a, quote, scheming welfare mother who was tired of being poor. He went on to say that Mona mentioned to Guevara at a bar that she was tired of being poor and asked Guevara for ideas regarding how to make money. The defense alleged that Guevara suggested to Mona that she sell drugs, while Mona had other money-making ideas. Mona, according to the defense, believed the ransom money would eventually end up in her hands. The defense claimed that this conversation between Mona and Guevara took place just two weeks prior to Corinne's disappearance. Torres told jurors that Mona had sex with Guevara inside his car after their conversation at the bar. Torres said, quote, Mona Williams was involved in the disappearance of Corinne Erstad. Torres went into trial ready to open the curtains and give the jury an inside look at alleged abusive conditions within the Williams home. Prior to trial, Torres obtained records confirming that Corinne and her brothers had spent months in foster care while they were young. It was not a secret that after Corinne's parents separated in 1987, both of their lives were in turmoil. James Ersted was hospitalized for depression and Mona Williams was treated for substance abuse. The Ersted children did end up in foster care. However, Mona says it was at her request given that she and Corinne's father were not in a good place at the time. Torres told the jury that the Ersted children were abused and that this dysfunction may have been connected to Corinne's disappearance. An example of abuse that Torres pointed out were hospital records showing that Corinne had been hospitalized for failure to thrive when she was just an infant. Mona said on the witness stand that Corinne suffered from a stomach ailment which caused her to vomit and lose weight when she was 7 months old. Torres also produced records that showed 30-year-old James Ersted pled guilty to misdemeanor assault in 1990. The charge stemmed from an incident when Ersted twisted his 4-year-old son's leg, causing torn ligaments in his knee. Ersted later said about the incident that he had, quote, become enraged beyond the normal line of sanity. Ersted went on to say, that he began using timeouts as punishment after the incident, claiming that he and Mona had learned this method of discipline during the time their children were in foster care. Defense attorney Torres also presented evidence that Mona had a court order of protection against James Ersted. Part of the defense's strategy was to put Corinne's parents on trial right alongside the defendant, Robert Guevara. Guevara's defense team presented witnesses who claimed that his trailer home and storage locker were not secured, leaving an opportunity for someone to plant evidence. They further claim that evidence may have been planted by Mona or Guevara's fiancé, Christine Holzmer, in order to frame Guevara. Torres alleged that Holzmer had been threatened by police if she didn't cooperate with them. He claimed that police threatened to take Holzmer's children away if she didn't cooperate the defense team offered a theory as to what may have been the motivation behind the crime. They theorized that Corinne's mother, Mona, arranged for the kidnapping of her daughter in order to collect on a ransom she believed would be offered if her daughter went missing. Assistant Dakota County Attorney Philip Propakowitz opened his case by telling jurors that Guevara had boasted to a cellmate in Dakota County Jail that, quote, The police may know that I did it, but they will never prove it. Prokopowicz also told jurors that Guevara told another inmate that, quote, police were never going to find Corinne's body. The prosecutor, however, didn't offer names of either supposed jailhouse informant. In his two-and-a-half-hour opening statement, Prokopowicz also laid out for jurors that numerous blood-stained items were found inside of Guevara's storage locker. The bloodstains, Prokopowicz said, were linked to Corinne through DNA analysis. He also said that while Corinne's family was holding a prayer vigil for the missing girl, Guevara was attempting suicide inside a car in a parking lot. He made sure to point out that this was very strange behavior for someone who was supposedly a close family friend. During their investigation, police found what appeared to be a suicide note written by Guevara and an empty pill bottle. The note had the words, quote, I didn't do it, and ended with, quote, cops do this to all. The prosecution claimed that Guevara was at Corinne's home the day she went missing. Prokopowicz told the jury that Corinne was napping while Guevara was at her house drunk. Prokopowicz said Guevara left the family home right after Corinne went to the park, right before Guevara left, according to the prosecution. He said to Mona as he looked out a window, There's Corinne hiding by the blue house. After that, Guevara left and Corinne was never seen again. Prokopowicz told the jury that Guevara took Corinne to his house and raped her. He then said Guevara disposed of her body, so his horrifying acts would not be discovered. DNA evidence took center stage at Guevara's trial. In the early 1990s, however, Minnesota law was very restrictive when it came to using DNA evidence during trial, and DNA evidence was a very new concept at that time. This was before the infamous O.J. Simpson trial, when DNA became a more common household conversation piece. The DNA evidence in Corinne's case was going to be a hurdle for the prosecution. In addition, they were trying a murder case without a body. Corinne's case was only the second in Minnesota history where murder charges were sought with no body. That law has since been changed. The FBI and the State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension performed DNA analysis on the items found inside Guevara's locker and his home. The pair of bloody underwear belonged to Guevara's fiancé, however, the blood found on them did not belong to her. DNA analysis showed that the blood found on the pair of women's underwear belonged to Corinne. Blood found on the underwear was compared to blood found on Corinne's bedding, which got there after she had a bicycle accident the month before she went missing. The blood on the underwear was a match to the blood on her bedding. A pubic hair matching Gavera was also found on the underwear. Holzmer eventually gave police a shower curtain from the home she shared with Gavera. The shower curtain was analyzed and blood and semen were found on it. The blood belonged to Corinne and the semen was Guevara's. DNA analysis also confirmed that it was Corinne's blood on Guevara's blue sweatpants, his blanket, and two white paper towels, which were found inside his storage locker. On Corinne's sundress, a strand of hair consistent with Guevara's was found. The prosecution told the jury that all of this evidence was enough to convict Guevara. He addressed the fact that no Minnesota jury has ever convicted someone for murder without a body. Prokopowicz told the jury, quote, but you must take the evidence we have to its logical conclusion. Are you currently getting paid to listen to podcasts? I recently discovered a new free app called PodCoin. The app literally pays you to do something you already love doing, binge on podcasts. Here's how it works. Just listen to podcasts like usual and you'll start earning PodCoin while you listen. Then turn your PodCoin into gift cards for places like Amazon or Starbucks. If you're feeling extra warm and fuzzy, You can even donate your PodCoin to charity. The more you listen, the more you earn. If you wanna start getting paid to listen to podcasts, I've got a special offer for you. Simply download the PodCoin app on iPhone or PodCoin Android and use code MURDERISH to get 300 PodCoins just for signing up. I mean, it's the best of all worlds colliding. You could be podcast binging, sipping on a Starbucks latte, all the while shopping online at Amazon. And now I have a way to soften the blow when my husband asks me about our latest Amazon bill. I'll tell him my podcast obsession actually helped pay for it. Boom. Remember, use code MURDERISH when you sign up with PodCoin. If you're craving a new binge-worthy podcast, I've got one that's full of twists and turns. Each season, true crime podcast, Case Closed, covers solved cases from crime to conviction. Right now, Case Closed is telling the story of Rusty Snyderman, an Atlanta businessman killed in 2010. Rusty was murdered in a parking lot right after he dropped his son off at preschool. A minivan pulled up next to him and shot him four times in the chest, leaving Rusty no time to react. With no known enemies, people could not figure out who would want to kill the caring father and husband. On the current season of Case Closed, you'll learn about Rusty, his loving marriage, and the $2 million life insurance policy in his name. You'll also learn who was in the minivan that day and what motivated them to murder Rusty. Search for Case Closed wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to hit the subscribe button. That's Case Closed. After a a five-and-a-half-month-long trial, the jury began deliberating Guevara's fate. On April 6, 1993, less than a year after Corinne disappeared, A Dakota County jury was ready to deliver their verdicts, shortly after 9 p.m. The jury deliberated for 52 hours over a six-day span and found Robert Guevara not guilty on all eight charges brought against him. Guevara's family sobbed in relief after hearing the verdicts. Others in the courtroom were stunned. Two members of the jury, who requested to remain anonymous, would later say that there were several reasons they reluctantly decided not to convict him. The two jurors cited the lack of significant amounts of blood, unreliable witnesses, reasonable doubt, and the lack of a body as reasons for their decision not to convict. They said that Torres planted reasonable doubt in their minds, and they believed that police may have planted evidence. One juror said, quote, I don't think the verdict was right, but our hands were tied. There was reasonable doubt. The other juror said of the verdicts, You can't be happy with Bob Guevara going loose. He was definitely guilty of something. We just don't know what. According to the Pioneer Press, both of these jurors suspected that police may have planted evidence with Guevara's semen on it and Corinne's blood. Captain Gary McLeod, who was in charge of the investigation after Corinne's disappearance, said about the jurors, quote, they watch too much TV. Prosecuting attorney James Backstrom was quoted as saying, quote, circumstantial evidence has just as much weight as direct evidence, and the jury was told that by the judge. This was primarily a circumstantial evidence case. In today's world, Backstrom's statement may seem a bit odd, as the case against Guevara included quite a bit of DNA evidence, direct evidence. But back in 1993, DNA had not advanced to the degree it has today, so it's possible some people viewed Guevara's case as being mostly circumstantial. Today, however, a case like this would most certainly feature the DNA as the primary factor for conviction. Backstrom also pointed out, after trial, how unfortunate it was that jurors focused much of their attention on Mona Williams' lifestyle. Backstrom believes this played a role in their decision not to convict. Defense attorney Torres put Corinne's family on trial, and it worked. Whether the lifestyles of Corinne's family played a key role in the jury's decision is only known by the jury. Although nobody can ever know what the outcome would be if this case was tried today, Many believe that all of the DNA evidence stacked against Guevara would have been the nail in his coffin today. Guevara, who had maintained his innocence since his arrest, was freed from jail 15 minutes after being found innocent on all charges. He had previously held up signs from the window of his jail cell proclaiming his innocence. When asked how he felt at the time, Guevara simply replied, quote, Happy. Guevara's friends and family members were waiting for him and cheered loudly when they first saw him walk free. Guevara, 25 years old at the time, wrapped his arms around his attorney, obviously relieved. Guevara's defense attorney said after the verdict, quote, It's been an uphill battle from day one. We not only had to fight the prosecution, we had to fight the news media. Dakota County wasn't without its share of murder cases and those involving sex offenses. Prosecutor Backstrom tried many of them. Backstrom, however, will most certainly be remembered for the high-profile case he tried against Robert Guevara. Backstrom placed a photo of Corinne Erstad on a bookshelf inside his home. The trial took a great toll on Backstrom and made him question his future as a prosecuting attorney. Backstrom said, quote, It was a time in my life, probably the only time in my career as county attorney, when I came back and sat in my office alone that night after the verdict came in, and I wasn't sure whether I could keep doing what I was doing because it hurt in my soul, and it still hurts. Corinne's family reported being very afraid after the not guilty verdicts. They believed Guevara was a dangerous man, and they spoke about putting deadbolts on their doors, and requesting police protection from him. Many people who lived in the Invergrove community called into local radio shows demanding answers from the jurors. Many people believe the jury got it wrong, and they were enraged by this. James Ersted, Corinne's father, said he had, quote, an ache inside, a feeling of hurt for Corinne, after the verdicts. He spoke with Mona the following day, who was pondering how her two sons will ever learn to trust anyone. James Ersted said, quote, She wonders how her kids are going to be able to tell right from wrong after that verdict. Steve Williams, Corinne's stepfather, said after the trial that he and Mona believed that Corinne was dead. Steve had initially defended his friend, Robert Guevara, when police first questioned him about Corinne's disappearance. His opinion changed quickly, once Corinne's sundress was found inside of Guevara's locker. According to Williams, Corinne's family has suffered through harassment by people who believe the defense's accusations against them. Guevara's ex-fiancée, Christine Holzmer, maintained after trial that police threatened to take away her children, including her unborn child with Guevara. Police denied these allegations during trial. At the time, Holzmer said she still had feelings for Guevara, but wasn't sure she was ready to be back in a relationship with him. Mona was in disbelief over the jury's decision, but she stopped short of condemning them for it. Instead, Mona commended the prosecution's efforts during trial. Mona said she felt betrayed by the jury's verdict, as she strongly believes Guevara kidnapped, raped, and murdered her daughter. Mona fought back tears during a news conference shortly after the verdicts were announced. She told onlookers, quote, Our daughter meant more to us than anything in this world. I don't understand how somebody can come and take something that's that precious to someone else and be found not guilty of it. And I very much believe he did take my daughter. I hope some way, someday, that he will pay for it one way or another. Mona said that she and her sons, seven and eight years old at the time, were, quote, scared to death, referring to the fact that Guevara was a free man. Sadly, about a year after Guevara's trial ended, Steve and Mona Williams mourned the loss of another daughter. Mona gave birth to a baby girl who was born prematurely and with a congenital heart problem. The one month old baby girl died on March 3, 1994, at Children's Hospital in St. Paul. The Williams endured this tragedy while in the process of trying to put together a funeral for Corinne, whom they had always believed was dead. To make matters worse, Mona and Steve reported seeing Guevara at a local Kmart. Not long after the trial concluded, it was during this time that Mona had begun the process to have her daughter declared legally dead, as that would allow them to have a funeral for her. Anthony Torres was a relatively unknown defense attorney prior to Guevara's trial. After achieving a not guilty verdict for Guevara, one of Minnesota's most high-profile cases, Torres's career got a big boost he was suddenly welcomed by Minnesota's top defense attorneys. Sort of a welcome-to-the-club scenario. In February of 2017, 24 years after Guevara's trial concluded, his older brother, 52-year-old Jerry Guevara Jr., was arrested and charged with sexually assaulting a minor. In Washington County District Court, Jerry was charged with two counts of third-degree criminal sexual conduct. The charge claimed that Jerry had fathered two children with a girl over whom he had authority. Although Robert Guevara, 49 years old at the time of his brother's arrest, was acquitted in 1993, authorities have always believed he was involved in Corinne's disappearance. This, according to Lieutenant Joshua Otis of the Invergrove Heights Police Department, his brother Jerry's 2017 arrest brought new attention to Corinne's case as investigators hoped it would lead to new information in the case that had been cold for decades. Otis said of Jerry's arrest, quote, It allows us the opportunity to talk to Jerry about our investigation into Corinne. I wouldn't call it a crack in the case yet, because we don't know what he'll say, but we want to see if he can provide any information to us about some of the questions we still have about what happened. Even after all these years have passed, Otis said tips have continued to come in for Corinne's case. In fact, it was one of those tips that led to Jerry Guevara's arrest. Bail bondsmen had been searching for a fugitive at a home in Stearns County. During their search, the bondsmen saw a 31-year-old woman who looked like an age-progression photo of Corinne Erstad. The woman was living in Jerry Guevara's home along with several children. According to the bondsman, the children were in, quote, various stages of undress. The bondsman alerted police of their discovery, and this led to the arrest of Jerry Guevara. Jerry's residence was reported to be in, quote, disarray and reeked of, quote, feces and urine. According to a subsequent complaint, the house contained inadequate food and clothing for the children. Police were able to confirm later that the 31-year-old woman was not Corinne Erstad. Otis confirmed that police have always believed that Corinne is dead. Although Jerry's arrest didn't lead to any new information in Corinne's case, evidence found inside Jerry's home seemed to link him to other unrelated crimes. Two of the nine children Jerry fathered with the woman— were conceived while she was just 16 and 17 years old, according to the complaint. Allegedly, Jerry was 37 years old at the time the first child was conceived. The woman confirmed to investigators that she and Jerry had been in a relationship for over a decade and that they were engaged. The charges filed against Jerry spanned over two counties, Washington and Olmsted, as authorities believed his alleged sexual crimes took place there. Corinne's father, James Ersted, seemed as if he didn't want to get his hopes up after learning of Jerry's arrest. He said it was premature to say whether Jerry's arrest could offer any sort of break in Corinne's cold case. James said, quote, we're in a situation where it's possible, but I don't know what will happen. I've got to wait and see. There was talk of some sort of plea deal being given to Jerry. In exchange for information in Corinne's case, However, no such plea deal was ever reached. Jerry's father, Jerry Guevara Sr., said his son was being set up and that charges against him were from events that occurred over a decade ago. Guevara Sr. said, quote, this is all bullshit. They made things up. What happened is, what, 16 years ago? But the thing is, it was resolved and there is obviously a statute of limitation and other stuff. They are just trying to set him up. Jerry Guevara would eventually be convicted on the two sex crimes charges against him in Washington County. On July 31, 2017, he was sentenced to 18 months in prison and 15 years of probation. Jerry faced additional sex charges in Olmstead County. In early 2018, sex charges against Jerry in Ramsey County were dropped. The Ramsey County Attorney's Office simply stated, that further investigations needed to be conducted. Although authorities were hoping Jerry would provide them with information in his brother's case involving Corinne Erstad, they were fully aware that Robert Guevara can never be charged in Minnesota again with Corinne's murder due to double jeopardy laws. That said, Otis said a conviction is not the primary goal in Corinne's case. The goal is to find Corinne. Otis said, quote, our primary goal is to find Corinne, kind of like the Jacob Wetterling case. Jacob Wetterling, an 11-year- old boy, was kidnapped and murdered in St. Joseph, Minnesota, in 1989. His remains went undiscovered for almost three decades. Otis went on to say, "I think our main goal is find Corinne and to give the police department and her family some sort of closure. If, however, Corinne’s body is discovered in another state, and more evidence linking Guevara to the murder is discovered, he could be charged in that state. In addition, federal authorities could charge Guevara if they were able to show that he took Corinne across state lines while she was still alive. Nearing three decades since young Corinne vanished, her body has never been found and her case remains unsolved. Two years after she disappeared in 1994, Corinne was declared legally dead. Robert Guevara has kept a low profile since his trial concluded. If you have any information in Corinne Erstad's case, please contact Invergrove Heights Police Department, Missing Persons Unit, at area code 651-450-2533. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'd love to discuss this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you like this show, there are so many ways you can support it. You can start by hitting the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes, which helps other people discover Murderish even easier. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by HelloFresh Miro, and PodCoin. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com murderish, where your monthly support will take you behind the mic and give you access to perks like exclusive bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast, and other cool stuff. That's patreon.com murderish. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcasts.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other cool stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to jamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions, Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by me with research help provided by Heidi Bremmer. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.